1996, in a film that would change the landscape of blockbuster filmmaking, one film decided to answer the question of whether or not we are alone in the universe. That film was Independence Day. Independence Day was an enormous blockbuster film that featured some of the most incredible visual effects of its time and proceeded to be critically and commercially very successful despite its flaws of which there are many and it created a whole new science fiction universe that many people wanted to see continue that continuation eventually came 20 years later with Independence Day resurgence and by the time it arrived many of us wished it hadn't Independence Day was conceived by Roland Emmerich uh, and Dean Devlin, his longtime collaborator, while they were filming, uh, well, sorry, while they were promoting Stargate uh, in 1994. A reporter asked uh, Emmerich why he made a film with the content that Stargate has if he didn't believe in aliens. And Emmerich said that he was fascinated by the idea of an alien arrival and explained his response by asking the reporter to imagine what it would be like to wake up one morning and discover 15-mile-wide spaceships hovering over the world's largest cities. Emmerich then turned to Devlin and said, I think I have an idea for our next film. The idea expanded from there to incorporate a large-scale alien attack, with Devlin saying he was bothered by the fact that, for the most part, in alien invasion movies, they come down to Earth and they're hidden in some kind of backfield, or they arrive in little spores and inject themselves into the back of someone's head. So Emmerich agreed to this by asking if Devlin, if arriving from across the galaxy, would you hide in a farm or would you make a big entrance? And so during a month-long vacation in Mexico, they wrote the script for Independence Day. It was soon greenlit by 20th Century Fox chairman Peter Chernin, and production began just three days later in February 1995. By the time 1996 rolled around, Stargate had been a huge success, so people were very interested in what Emmerich and Devlin were preparing with Independence Day. Fox also began a really expensive marketing campaign to help promote the film, um, which included a, a dramatic commercial airing during the 30th Super Bowl, which it paid $1.3 million for, thus beginning a trend of using Super Bowl airtime to begin advertising campaigns for blockbuster films, um, all because of the success of Independence Day. They also entered uh, promotional deals with um, Apple, Coca-Cola, and several others, 
all of which have roles in the film um, as well as being just, you know, not just used as product placement, but actually having, you know, actual roles in the film. You know, um, David's power book, 5300 laptop, um, is, you know, that's something that he actually uses as part of the plot of the film. The Coca-Cola can... Um, is obviously used in quite a pivotal scene towards the end of the third act, uh, towards the start of the third act. So yeah, there's there's a lot of good cross promotion. Um, that obviously started a trend, but I don't think was as clumsy as it could have been, uh, and as some later films would be. And to truly capitalise on the film, um, a weekend before it was released, the Fox Network aired a half-hour special of the film, the first third of which was a spoof news report on the events that happen. And the BBC in the UK did something similar um, on the weekend of release, um, both of which clearly taking inspiration from the Orson Welles radio drama for The War of the Worlds, um, which obviously I spoke about earlier on this year. Roger Ebert even attributed most of the film's quite early success to these teaser trailers and the marketing campaigns, acknowledging them as truly brilliant. The film went on to become the highest-grossing film of 1996 and, at the time, was the second-highest-grossing film in the world, um, behind only Jurassic Park, which had come out three years earlier. It went on to beat many other blockbusters that year, including Twister, Scream, Space Jam, Mission Impossible, The Rock, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Eraser, um, all of which also came out in 1996. Um, it set records all across the board um, in terms of, you know, money-making. You know, it smashed Die Hard 2's six-year record for the biggest pre-opening of any film, um, officially opened to the public on July 3rd with seven, making $17.4 million. Um, it held it held a record for the highest Thursday gross until it was overtaken by Star Wars Episode 2 six years later. It beat two records that had been previously held by Terminator 2 for the largest five-day gross of any film, as well as the biggest July opening weekend. It, in fact, held the number one spot in the, uh, in theatres for three consecutive weeks before it got displaced by A Time to Kill, uh, Matthew McConaughey and uh, Sandra Bullock film based on a John Grisham novel. Had the second-highest opening weekend of any movie behind only Batman Forever, which had come out the year previously. Um, also broke records held by Toy Story and Jurassic Park. Um, you know, for its biggest, you know, biggest openings and things like that. It, it was a huge success. It became the quickest film to earn $150 million, taking only 12 days. Um, it approached 200 million uh, within 21 days and held that record for three years until um, episode one in 99. You know, a list of big name films that it ended up making more money on than 
at the time included Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters, Aladdin, Mrs. Doubtfire, Ghost. You know, it became the 14th highest gross, highest domestic grossing film of all time in America. But its worldwide numbers were what blew it away. Um, it ended up making $306 million in the US and Canada, but $511 million in other territories. Um for a combined total of $817 million, which at the time was second only to Jurassic Park, um, you know, beating The Lion King, which was the previous record holder. The overwhelming success was no doubt a large part of the trend of large-scale disaster films at the end of the 90s, with films like Armageddon and Deep Impact following in quite quick succession. Review-wise, the film did did quite well. Um, it was given mixed to positive reviews. Um, I think Rotten Tomatoes currently holds it at about um, 66%. So that's not too bad. Um, and audiences polled by CinemaScore gave it an average grade of an A. So... Yeah, it's it's generally quite like well liked. Um, most critics um, savage the characters and the dialogue, um, saying a lot of the characters are cardboard or stereotypical, and that the dialogue was weak. However, the visuals, the music, were all v and the special effects was, were consistently praised, and many people did tend to agree that it lived up to the hype that it had built up. Um, before release. It was less well received outside of America though um, due to quite a heavy element of gung-ho American jingoism um, which is prevalent throughout the movie. Um, especially um, Thomas Whitmore's Independence Day speech um, towards the end of the film which the BBC described as the most jaw-droppingly pompous soliloquy ever delivered in a mainstream Hollywood movie, which, while I have to kind of agree, I do quite like that speech, so um, I'm a bit biased towards the film. Uh, it's also been, that speech has also been called the cheesiest movie moment of all time by readers of Empire. However, um, Empire film critic Kim Newman also gave the film a five-star rating in the original review of the film, um, in 1996. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel were a bit more critical, as, you know, they, they would want to be. Roger Ebert said there was a lack of imagination in the spaceship and creature designs, um, which Gene Siskel agreed with. Personally, I agree, but I do think there's perhaps reasons why there was a lack of imagination in the designs. I think... Well, I'll, I'll get to it in a bit. Now, the first film's success obviously prompted um, a franchise, or at least talks of a franchise. There was um, a prequel novel um, that was released in 1998, um, as well as... This, oh, and a second prequel as well. Oh, well, not a second prequel it was the second novel set at around the same time 
uh, as the original film, but based in Saudi Arabia, featuring the two Royal Air Force officers shown in the montage with the Morse code in the film. It was also a tie-in flight sim shooter game, which, while not terrible, was not great. The visuals were a bit of a muddied mess as well. But the thing everyone started to talk about was the potential for a sequel. And it looked for a few years like we might get one. Um, comments were made by American Devlin. There were reports in um, publications at the time that, you know, we'd have the story where we went to the aliens' home world and built up that aspect of the law. However, it would take nearly 20 years before a sequel finally appeared. Um, the sequel first started to pick up steam in June 2011, when Devlin confirmed that he and Emmerich had written treatment for two sequels, and they wanted Will Smith to return, as well as the other characters. However... Um, Fox refused to provide the $50 million salary that Smith demanded for the two sequels. But they still made plans to shoot the films back-to-back, -back, regardless of Smith's involvement. However, these two sequels, what would have been called Independence Day Forever, Part 1 and 2, were abandoned in place of a single standalone sequel called Independence Day Resurgence, um, which began casting in 2014 and was eventually released for the 20th anniversary in 2016. Resurgence was unable to replicate the success of the first film. It was not one of the top grossing films of the year, nor even of its month of release. In fact, the highest grossing film of June 2016 when it released was Finding Dory. Also, despite some clear attempts to um, garner support in China, um, you know, the second, world's second biggest movie market at the minute, or at the time at least, um, that was also unsuccessful. Cinema goers there complained about how little screen time there was for the main Chinese actress, which is Angela Baby. Moreover, it was released in quite a crowded summer, um, amidst what was being called sequelitis, in which numerous major sequels underperformed. In fact, as it stands, a Against a production budget of $165 million, which is over double what the original film cost. The original film only had a budget of $75 million, which is, I think, was small even for the time. But against that $165 million budget, Insurgents has only made um, $389.7 million which actually makes it a box office disappointment. Not quite a bomb, because it did make its budget back, but definitely a disappointment. Now, it did do quite well in some foreign territories. It made uh, quite a lot of money 
uh, in Japan and Latin America, especially compared to a lot of other efforts by Fox. Um, but yeah, it was not a very successful film. And critically, it was savaged. It has a, an approval rating of about 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is very poor. Cinema Score, however, gave it a B. Um, from what I understand, Cinema Score polls people on as they leave the theatres on opening night. Um, so you're you're coming after the diehard fans. Um, so these were people who were guaranteed to see it on opening night. So in that respect, you're going to get a more of a weighted average to of people enjoying it. But either way, it could probably still have been better. Now, most reviews I can find of Resurgence are in the negative. Um, especially saying that, um, you know, it should be dumb fun, but it's not. It's just dumb. Or saying that it isn't going to wow anyone who's seen the original, but it may satisfy younger audiences who care about battle sequences. Uh, someone saying that the... The final shot of the film being obvious set up for a sequel and saying, I just pray to God aliens come and wipe us all out before that day comes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's got a a mix of quite unkind reviews. There are a couple of positive ones, but when I say positive, they're, they're pretty much just describing it as, uh, you know, cheesy or silly, but spectacular. And it's like, you know, they're not... I think Roland Emmerich did uh, attain a kind of status off the back of not just Independence Day, but his follow-ups with 2012 and The Day After Tomorrow of being a big disaster director. And he does what he does so very, very well um, that I don't think you can fault him for that. But at the same time, I think people were very, very unimpressed um, with Independence Day Resurgence. And I was one of them. And after watching the two films side by side, I decided to put on my critical analysis hat. And that's what I'm going to present for you now, because I really do feel that everything that in Resurgence fails at is something that the first film succeeds at. And that together, the two of them work almost as opposites rather than as complementary parts of the same franchise. And so, yeah, I want to present by analysing the different elements of these two films why I think the first film succeeds and why I think Resurgence missed the point completely. So, Independence Day. Um, I really like it. I, I I do. I really like the first film. I think it's 
a very good example of how to pace a film. Because while the plot is relatively simple, it's very, very well paced in that everything happens in a logical progression. So, you know, the aliens get introduced from the very, very first scene where they pass over the moon and we hear Neil Armstrong's speech um, from the day that of the moon landing. Um, and then we see um, Seti um, intercept the alien signal and then they tell, you know... Um, they tell government officials and you know it gradually becomes you know the, there's a whole series of scenes where more and more people find out about the aliens all the way up to the president Thomas Whitmore who is a main character played by Bill Pullman and you know every so often it cuts back to the ship as it arrives in orbit as it starts disgorging the city destroying ships um, you know as they start coming through the atmosphere it's really clever. <laughs> I think that first act is paced really, really well. Um, and we're gradually introduced to all the different characters. We get introduced to um, Thomas Whitmore and we see that he's a former pilot from the Gulf War who has become president and has lost a lot of popularity recently. We hear, we see his wife, who is... Um, across the country in New York at an event. Um, not New York, sorry, LA. He's in Washington, D.C. She's in LA. So she's across the country at an event. We see um, his press secretary, um, Connie Constance Spano. Um, you know, and at the close relationship that those two have. Uh, we see his daughter. And then, you know, it goes from... After we get a scene with him and introducing his his cast, um, we then get a scene with, um, you know, we get another scene with the aliens. Then we get a scene with David, um, or you know, and get a scene with Russell and and so on. Um, as it just introduces all these new characters to us, um, and the characters are all introduced in a way that sort of establishes them with the people around them um and i'm going to talk more on characters later on but you know in very short order we are introduced to what are essentially the four leads of the film which are thomas whitmore uh david levinson played by jeff goldblum steve hiller played by um will smith who is actually the last of the main four to appear and russell case played by randy quaid and, you know, each of their introductions and each of their scenes are intercut with scenes of the alien arrival. In fact, David, I think, is the only one, is the first one that gets two scenes in succession um, without a break from something else. The film, you know, is also split into three acts very clearly by the demarcation of the three days so july 2nd july 3rd and july 4th um and i think each of those days also has its own rising action 
and Climax, um, which I think works very, very well. So with July 2nd, the opening day, um, everything is building up to the alien attack, which happens very late at night um, as the characters kind of scramble together um, to oppose the aliens and, and try and find out what's what to do. Um, you know, the characters manage to evacuate and flee um, just before the city destroyers activate their weapons and take out the initial cities, including New York, Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles, um, as well as numerous other cities around the world. In fact, the list of cities destroyed that was released in the lead-up to Resurgence is actually quite impressive. There's something like 96 different cities destroyed all around the world. There's a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that ends July 2nd with the attack. Then July 3rd, we start with the counterattack by Steve and his fighter pilots uh, launching from El Toro. And, you know, most of them are wiped out in short order. Um, and then the, the rising tension is as the characters arrive at Alien 50, Area 51 and learn a bit more about the aliens um, through encountering Dr. Oaken, uh, played by Brent Spiner, who's a character, you know, an actor and a character I really like. So, um, although he did start to grate on me in the sequel, which I will get to. Um, and then, yeah, the big... The rising climax at the, you know, the big climax at the end of Act Two uh, on July 3rd is Thomas Whitmore's decision to use nuclear bombs to try and fight the aliens. And they launch a nuclear bomb at the aliens over Houston in Texas, which obviously destroys Houston, um, but has no effect on the alien ship. And, you know, it leaves the crew kind of demoralised as they refuse to fight anymore. Um, we also have a separate climax as um, Steve Hiller, determined to get back to his wife, um, steals a, a Huey and flies back, um, saves, uh, not his wife at the time, his fiance Jasmine, um, and the characters she's been able to rescue in the rubble of LA, including the president's wife, who is injured and brings them back to area 51 as well and yeah i like that and then you know that we end with you know the president's wife marilyn dying and she's also played by um mary mcdonald who i know most famously from the reboot of battlestar galactica where she plays laura roslin she's in in what is a relatively small role, she is a very good character in this. Um, she gets a, a couple of scenes that can really kind of engender her to you as an audience before she dies. And then the final day, the final act, July 4th, is begun when David outlines his plan to... Um, take out the aliens um, and sabotage their technology um, to lower their shields so that the humans can launch a, an offensive um, to defeat the city destroyers. And then obviously that builds into the 
the final battle, the Battle of Area 51, where um, the President and Russell join the fighter pilots um, trying to save the day, and Russell sacrifices himself and dies um, to save the world. Um, and yeah, I, I like it. I think it's a very, very well-paced film. The film is like two and a half hours long, and it doesn't feel that long, I don't think. Um, but yeah, I quite enjoy it. Um, there's a reveal at the midpoint of the movie about the aliens' motives, and this is done through a mental link with uh, President Whitmore, um, which is what prompts him in quite an anger response to try and nuke them. Um, and it's it's done in a relatively simple way. It, it, he reveals that the aliens are essentially locusts travelling from planet to planet, um, consuming every resource and moving on. Um, before this, Dr. Oaken posited that because they are dependent on an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere, perhaps they want to simply exterminate the humans so they can move in, um, which would have been an interesting concept on its own, very similar to something like War of the Worlds. Um, but no, the reveal of them, they're not actually interested in our planet, they just want to consume it and then move on. You know, it makes them a bit more simple in some ways. Um, but I don't think it's done in a bad way. I think um, I think despite their technology and their, their incredibly advanced technology, that reveal makes them simple and easy to understand, which is good. Resurgence, though... Resurgence is half an hour shorter, yet feels longer. Like, when I watched Independence Day Resurgence for the first time, I was checking the time. And it's like... I don't think it's as good... <laughs> Um, you know, I felt more bored during it. Um, for example, the the big reveal of the alien ships, um, where they come out of the the clouds of fire, and appear above the major cities, and David's watching the one that comes in over New York. In the original film, that happens half an hour in. Um, you know, but the aliens have been built as this big significant threat up until then in the sequel um i mean for starters for starters there's a lot of i, I don't want to say exposition because i don't think they ever explain it very well it, it's just presented to us that this is a world that has gone back to normal but now has advanced alien technology but it's never really explained. It was explained in tie-in media. There was a, a couple of tie-in websites that were launched for the film um, that expanded, you know, that, like I said, they revealed the list of destroyed cities. But it's like, in the film, we see Washington, D.C., we see New York, we see Los Angeles, and they are 
completely intact, as well as other cities that we know were destroyed in the first film, like London and Paris. And they're completely intact again. Like, the devastation that we saw in the first film... Those films, those cities should not be as rebuilt as they are, um, even 20 years later. Um, and especially not with huge amounts of alien technology as well. Um, never mind that I have no idea how they were able to reverse engineer so much alien technology, um, considering that the the city destroyers were were devastated in a way that doesn't look like they have much left like they would have been as you know essentially useless but that's beside the point I, I suppose we have to accept that that um you know that suspension of disbelief in order to uh, enjoy the film <laughs> but then the um about half an hour in in the new film is also when the big alien mothership arrives. Except that alien mothership just suddenly appears like ten minutes before it actually lands on the planet and destroys a whole load of stuff. Um, you know, this, this ship sits on top of the Atlantic. It's very bizarre to look at. Uh, it just looks too massive. It looks beyond believable. And it just suddenly arrives. Like, it arrives at the moon, and we've only just noticed it. Um, and it proceeds to wipe out a lot of the, you know, the defences that the planet Earth has made using their technology within seconds. You know, it... it and it, when it lands over the Atlantic as well, it's sort of unexplained because it passes over like it ends up covering the Atlantic between sort of the east coast of America and Europe but it passes over at some point what looks like Shanghai or Hong Kong something like that in, in China a big Chinese city um, a big Chinese metropolis and picks up <laughs> the city because it has its own gravity because of course it does it's the size of a small planetoid um and it just sort of picks up uh buildings from china and drops them on london as it hovers over there but that suggests it passed over like most of europe as well <laughs> Like most most of Asia, most of mainland Asia, in between China and uh, England, which yeah, it's it's just bizarre, and it's like the the first film always seems to have um, the the geography in the first film at some point seems bizarre, like they like. When Steve and his crew uh, of pilots fight the city destroyer above with the ruins of Los Angeles, um, Steve and his wingman, who I forget the name of, played by Harry Connick Jr., um, 
they fly off being chased by two alien ships and they end up very quickly in the Grand Canyon. Now, the Grand Canyon isn't too far away from Los Angeles, but it's far enough that, you know, it's not just instantaneous to get there. It's going to take some some travel time. And then he crashes near the Grand Canyon and starts to walk to Area 51, which he apparently saw from the air. Now, again, Area 51 is some distance away from the Grand Canyon. And he was inside the Grand Canyon for most of his flight. So how did he see Area 51 from the air? And then, never mind that, the location that they actually use is the salt flats in Utah. So when he's walking across the desert, he's actually over the salt flats. So that then becomes bizarre as well. Um, But to counter that, the geography in this is even more bizarre with the the sudden arrival of Hong Kong to London. Um, But yeah... um, the film tries to echo the original in a lot of ways. Um, they try to use uh, Whitmore's speech from the closing, you know, fr- from the third act of the original film over the opening scenes, but kind of split up. And it's to show that a signal is being picked up by the aliens before they arrive. Um and it's clearly meant to echo sort of Armstrong's speech in the original, but I don't think it works. It's it's done with a more overtly ominous tones, um, because obviously it's more aliens that have detected a signal. There's a few action scenes in this that just feel gratuitous, especially the very first one, um, which is... Liam Hemsworth's character, Morrison, Jake Morrison, is controlling a, a tug, on the like a space tug on the moon, and it's putting a weapon in place. And then while he's arguing with his co-pilot, Charlie, they knock it, and it starts tilting. It looks like it's almost going to fall onto the moon base. And then they kind of put it back in place. And there's all this rising music and, like, oh, no, it's, 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 it's a big event does nothing i don't think it adds anything to the movie it's completely superfluous um there's a portrait of stephen hiller in the white house because he dies in between movies it's not explained why or how in the film it's explained in time websites but not explained in the film i think that's become a trend i have noticed in recent years where um, things will be explained in other media rather than being explained within the media itself. Um, The Star Wars sequel trilogies was especially bad at this, especially with Rise of Skywalker, where they did like cross-promotion with Fortnite. And it means that Palpatine's message is in Fortnite, not in the actual film. But I have my own many, many issues with Rise of Skywalker, which I'll get into at another time. 
There is one quite early reveal in this with where we get reintroduced to the character of David. Um, and it introduces the concept of a ship that landed in the War of 96 um, in Mbutu, um, which I believe is meant to be near the Congo, near the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that ship landed and was drilling towards the Earth's core, or, or, or digging underground anyway. And, you know, the the Africans there have been fighting a, you know, a, a ground war with the aliens ever since. Um, and the idea that there's more aliens as well. Like, there's a lot of aliens that have been killed captive in Area 51 as well. Never really explain where they came from. Presumably survivors from the city destroyers. Um, or, you know, captured pilots. But the the idea of more aliens as well also kind of breaks the law introduced the first film. In the first film, when Whitmore comes out of the, the mental link with the alien, he says that they roam from planet to planet their whole civilization. And it was obviously very clearly suggesting that that mothership contained their entire civilization. Um, but obviously this isn't the case, because now there's more of them. Um, and I do like the mental connection that they try and draw between humans and aliens. They have several of the human characters in this film, including um, Mbutu, the leader of the, the African nation, um, who's like a, a militia general, um, and Thomas Whitmore, and Dr. Oaken, who's also revealed to still be alive. Um, they have a mental link but with the aliens, and so they're able to kind of understand them and glean insight from them, which is very interesting. There's The second film also introduces the concept of another race of aliens when a sphere arrives over the moon and is then promptly shot down um, due to the fear of the, the World Council, despite David warning them not to. And <sighs> David has turned out to be right every time he suggested something in one of these films. <laughs> uh, I do have to wonder about this. This is the second time in the space of a month where I'm, I'm watching a sequel film and the thing I like the most is a character called David. Never mind. Um, but yes, David is... He's been proven right every time. So when he cautions the president, the new president, that is, not to fire... And then, with the agreement of the World Security Council, she fires anyway. <sighs> I mean, I get he's not part of the chain of command, but I wish his opinion stood for a bit more based on everything he's done for the human race. Um, also, quick note, the World Security Council... Very, very similar to the modern-day World Security Council. But based on what we know of the War of 96 and the cities that were destroyed in the War of 96, even if, even if you don't look at the supplementary material, even if you just look at the original film, and in the original film there's the suggestion that there's only, like, 15 or so city destroyers, um, rather than the 36 that there actually were, 
but even in that, most of the ones that we know of arrive in the Northern Hemisphere. Like, before they actually attack in the opening act of the movie, we see city destroyers over um, New York, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, London, Paris, Moscow, Berlin. I think they say there's one heading to India, so I presume that's somewhere like New Delhi. One or two heading to China as well. So, a lot of the Northern Hemisphere would be devastated. Like, properly devastated. Um, and a lot of those countries, you know, if they evacuated as late as the US did, might have even lost their leaderships. Um, they would have lost a lot of people. So why are the Western countries still so powerful? in this why why america and britain and france still part of the world security council why not southern hemisphere countries like south africa or india or australia um not part of this new world security council because presumably they wouldn't be have been as impacted <laughs> by what we've seen here because I mean, we do see, in the original film, soldiers all around the world. We see some soldiers in the Persian Gulf, um, including, like, a British... We see British soldiers speaking with very stereotypically British accents. Uh, you know, upper-class push accents, not regional British accents. Um, and they're there with um, both Palestinian and Israeli forces, I believe. Um... We see soldiers in Japan, we see soldiers in Russia. So we know those countries are affected. We then see also um, when the ships are brought down in a montage towards the end of the film, we see uh, ruined city destroyers in, I believe there's one near the pyramids, so that suggests Cairo, uh, one near Sydney. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of countries that probably weren't as affected. So why are they not more prominent in the World Security Council? There's a lot of suspension of disbelief, is what I'm getting at, that you have to put into this movie to accept it based on how it presents itself. Um, that sort of doesn't vibe with the world as built up in the original movie and the logical extensions of what the War of 96 would have done to the balance of power in the world. You know, not just the technology, but the the entire world would have changed. I highly doubt cities would have been rebuilt that quickly, and that perfectly as well. Like, Washington, D.C. looks almost exactly the same. The White House has been rebuilt, for example. Same with New York. Skyscrapers were ruined, but they're all back up and looking intact and looking the same as they did before. And it's... Yeah, and and then that's even before you get into the law-altering things. Like, if the harvesters, as the aliens now get called, are after our molten core, because when this new one lands, the new mothership, it immediately starts drilling to the Earth's core, right? If they're only after our magnetic core, right... Why were they bothering to systematically exterminate all of the cities in 96 
Why not just immediately start drilling? Um, you know, it's bizarre. The sphere, um, however, is becomes the sphere of exposition. Um, the this really annoying character called Floyd, um, who's linked to David in this, but is completely pointless. Um, he manages to activate the sphere. And it reveals that it has um, been gathering aliens who have survived the Harvesters and sharing technology with them that can fight the Harvesters because the spheres, which are a virtual intelligence, they're essentially like digitised constructs of people. Um, and they've basically been putting their technology to fight the Harvesters because the Harvesters are trying to destroy them. And that's why uh, people keep drawing the symbol of the sphere um, and, you know, why the aliens are so afraid of them. It's it's an interesting idea. It just could have been delivered so much better. They do try and show some of it. Like, they do try and show using holograms. But it is it just basically acts as this large exposition dump um, between the sphere and a whole load of the main characters at this point in the film, which include David, Oaken, uh, Thomas Whitmore, um, Mbutu and a whole load of others. Now, eventually, they manage to take down the uh, the aliens. Uh, basically, they find out the aliens have a queen, right? And she launches in her own ship to sort of come and get the sphere, which is now at Area 51. Um, they've got a crew of uh, like a ship crew watching the the drilling site and they reveal that 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 drill is almost to the earth's core they've got like an hour um so they set up a plan to try and destroy the alien ship uh these alien ships have all got their shields back and their shields are just as threatening as they were before in fact they they use the shields in some new quite interesting ways um, the human planes, despite having the lasers and the, the alien tech, don't seem to quite have the alien shields. It's like that's one thing that the humans couldn't recreate for whatever reason. But also they've got no way of deactivating the new shields again, apparently. Um, and, you know, they use... They use the shields in some quite interesting ways. Like, the new president because the 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 second new president because the first one um gets killed um because norad gets attacked again and i thought Shea mountain and norad was destroyed in the first film again but that's also been rebuilt which you know does that mean they rebuilt the whole of Shea mountain i don't know i mean Shea mountain is designed to withstand nuclear attack anyway so how the aliens were able to destroy it in the first film, I don't know. Anywho, getting off topic again. 
they managed to kill the original new president in this film. So then um, a defense, uh, the Secretary of Defense gets sworn in, and he's played by William Fitchner, um, who's just kind of there in this movie. You know, he, he's, he's just kind of there. And he launches a whole load of pilots towards the mothership um, with some bombers that have got cold fusion bombs, which are essentially like mega nukes, uh, <laughs> basically. Like cold f- fusion is like like nuclear bombs are fission. Uh, I don't know if anyone out there knows much about science. So nuclear bombs are fission, which is where you break uh, an atom into smaller atoms. Um fusion bombs uh fusion is essentially what happens in the sun which is where you take atoms and combine them to make bigger atoms and it releases far more energy so they said they have cold fusion bombs now and they're going to unleash them inside the alien mothership the thing is this just happens it's not built up towards it doesn't feel earned it's like when the decision to use nukes in the first film was made by the president it was not a decision he came to lightly like he dismisses it first of all when it's first suggested um and then he like he dismisses it when it's first suggested like point blank then he has his encounter with the alien and then he decides to do it and his decision to do it horrifies several other characters including david um you know, and after the first unsuccessful nuclear bomb, he doesn't decide to try and push it again. He he leaves it at that. Um, in this, though, no, the decision to use cold fusion bombs just made. And, you know, the, they fly the bombers in and the aliens manage to use these shield things that go into the open bombers as they're falling from the sky. Um, they go into these open bomb bays and attached devices to the bombs, which then mean that when they tried remotely exploding them, they get covered in shields. So, despite being enormous bombs, um, so it doesn't work. It doesn't work, and, you know, then the alien mothership activates this giant EMP blast which takes out all the remaining satellites so the humans can't talk to each other except by old wave, shortwave radio. Um, yeah, and then the alien ship launches a smaller ship towards Area 51, which has the alien queen on um, because she's trying to get the sphere. Um, they attack Area 51. They try and bait her with a... Uh, a tug, the the space tug from earlier, holding a decoy for the sphere um, and armed with another cold fusion bomb. And this time they've set up a shield generator so they can kind of trap it and blow it up. Um, And there's a lot of debate about who's going to be the pilot that does it um, because Patricia, the president's daughter from the first movie, is now all grown up and played by someone different. Um... She says she wants to do it, um, but her father says, no, I'm doing it, and has a dramatic shave and everything and decides to, to be the hero. Um, so he does it, he blows himself up, sacrifices himself to try and destroy the queen. It destroys her ship, but the queen herself gets out because while she's in this enormous 
um, battle suit because it's revealed in the first movie that the aliens wear these techno-organic battle suits. So she's in this enormous one. It's like 20 stories tall. And they end up fighting her in the desert outside of Area 51. Um, you know, and she chases around a bus full of school kids containing David and his father Julius, which is its own mess that I'll get to when I discuss the characters in this movie. Um, uh, but then Patricia flies in with her own ship, manages to disable the Queen's shield, so then the other pilots who also miraculously survived their own fall in the alien ship, um, they come back and they manage to help kill the Queen just after she gets the sphere. But yeah, the Queen is killed. And then when the Queen is killed, the alien mothership flies off at the end of the film. It just sort of detaches from Earth and flies off, like recalled back to the alien homeworld. If that's the case, why did that not happen to the City Destroyer in Ubuntu? Um, you know, and all the rest of the, the little small ships that are with it, they all just fly off as well because the Queen's gone. And then they do this really obvious sequel bait, which just feels really unnecessary. Um, you know, this really obvious sequel bait with the the alien sphere and it just it doesn't feel earned it doesn't have any of the catharsis of the original film the original film you know you really feel at certain points like humanity is about to lose like they're reaching you know when 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 the nuke fails for example you feel the blow the same way they do and it's helped by the score and the visuals and how everything ties together and and the acting as well um but this no <laughs> it's just done and it's it makes for a really really unsatisfying film where it just ends with this really obvious sequel bait so yeah as you may have gathered i don't like this film <laughs> So I've discussed the story, and before I go further into the characters, I want to discuss some other aspects of the film. So first of all, the visuals. Um, the visual effects for the first film are incredible. I think they still hold up for the most part. There are a couple of bits of um, wonky early CGI in there. Um, but for the most part, everything was done with practical effects, um and quite a lot of the time as well like with a lot of the military stuff they were doing it without the aid of uh the military as well um for those who don't know the u.s military basically tends to give money to every film um that features the military um and people will try and say oh there's military propaganda it isn't it isn't it's like for example it is possible to get money from the Pentagon and still paint the military in a quite an unflattering light. Um, you know, as most of the Marvel films do. <laughs> a lot of the Marvel films use money from the armed forces, but they're not necessarily all that positive towards the military quite a lot of the time. <sighs> However, 
they refused to finance Independence Day in any way. The reason being, Independence Day includes aliens at Area 51. Which is obviously a real-life conspiracy theory, and one that the uh, military actively tries to deny. Um, and so by depicting Area 51 in this way, in this film... Um, you know, the Pentagon refused to give the production company any money at all, which means usually when the Pentagon gives money, what they'll do is they will provide uh, vehicles, for example, or uniforms. You know, the American military is this hugely overfunded machine. There are huge amounts of vehicles that were built and developed purely to spend the budget. And so are just sitting in graveyards all across the country. Um, planes, mainly, quite a lot of the time. Loads of planes, loads of tanks. They're just sort of sat there, gathering dust and slowly rotting and rusting um, across the great US of A. Um, and so a lot of those will get provided to films um, for people to use. So, for example, like Top Gun. Top Gun uses real American planes. Um, you know, because it can. <laughs> because it has that, that money, that budget to play with. Um, so in this, because they weren't funded by the Pentagon, they had to source everything themselves. And, you know, they're, they're able to get a lot of good stuff, but then obviously that all comes out of the budget. Um the alien ships the a lot of the alien tech is as we would expect the aliens have a very sort of generic look to them they've got quite enlarged heads big black eyes when they're outside of their bodysuits by the way the bodysuits are quite an interesting design although they have elements lifted from things like well they have a mixture of elements lifted from a whole variety of places. But the actual aliens themselves, they're quite small. Uh, they've got these large, almost triangular-shaped heads. They've got the large black eyes, no visible mouth, um, which makes it unclear how they eat. Um, I'm reminded of a, a question. I've forgotten who posed it. I believe it might have been one of the creature designers on Star Trek 2009 who basically said um, when designing a creature you need to work out where the anus is. Um, essentially what he was saying was you know, the anus is something that is indicative of a digestive system. If you don't show that sort of system, something that both can ingest and excrete um logically in the design of your creature it's kind of hard to guess it's kind of hard to buy it as a living thing which i think was what he was trying to say there is no mouth on these creatures we have no indication as to how they ingest anything um and obviously you know all creatures will have to ingest something um to survive if it's just water um so yeah that's intriguing but yeah so 
with the exception of no mouth, these aliens look quite similar. Um, well, you could expect them to look quite similar to almost the grey aliens, which are present in a lot of um, alien abduction stories. Now... So that in itself is is interesting enough, and I believe that is deliberate um, to sort of base the designs on something that is quote-unquote real, um, you know, based on a lived experience. Um, in the same way that the alien ships, the city destroyers, look like saucers. Um, you know, they look like very large flying saucers. Um as do the smaller alien ships, the the scout craft. They also have that kind of disc-like design. Not quite a disc. They've got kind of like a crescent moon thing going on. Um, you know, with an indent at the front and then the, the things on top. Um, but I think that's done to make them look like something which, you know, was depicted in a lot of media at the time as aliens. You know, something like the X-Files, for example as well as, um, you know, alien abduction stories and um, UFO sightings. And I think that was deliberate um, because one of the characters, Russell Case, does say he was abducted by aliens. So I think the element to base it on something relatable to an audience, I think, was done deliberately. The scale of the ships is... Very impressive, though. Incredibly impressive. In fact, the final battle sequence, there's some final shots of Russell's plane flying towards the um, the primary weapon of the City Destroyer. And it's got these massive panels that are open and the ship is just dwarfed. You know, the, the Russell's plane is dwarfed by the City Destroyer around it. It's very impressive shot. Um... And it helps that this was all done with real models. Like, these, the city destroyers, the planes, they were all built models, and they filmed them flying, and they filmed, you know, they composited them all together as green screen, but it was using the same sort of model-making techniques that were prevalent in Star Wars or Star Trek. And it was on... It was on that cusp where... CGI was just starting to take over in the industry. In fact, um, in fact, two years after Independence Day would see the release of Star Trek First Contact, which featured the Star Trek franchise's first major CGI battle um, against a Borg cube. And, you know, only a year after that would see the release of episode one of Phantom Menace, which obviously featured quite a lot of CGI, um, not just in the battle sequences in space, but also ground battles and alien creatures and all sorts of stuff. So Independence Day was, was on the cusp. And in fact, it holds a record for the most amount of practical effects miniatures built um, for a single film. Because even things like Lord of the Rings, which came, you know, not many years afterwards, five years afterwards was the release of Fellowship, um, which features quite a, an overwhelming amount of practical effect shots itself, still used quite a lot of CGI. 
So, yeah, Independence Day held that record. I think it still does hold that record. And I don't think because of the move to CGI and because CGI now has become the cheaper option a lot of the time, I don't think that record will be beaten. Um, But then, of course, we get into the discussion about uh, VFX artists and how they can be um, used and abused by the industry. But I will cover that in a, a future episode because I'm going to talk about that in relation to something else. Um... I do think the CGI effects that are in this, though, do still look good. Um, It's mainly focusing on the shields around the ships um, and some of the explosions. But again, a lot of the explosions are done with real effects. In fact, the actual city destruction, the wall of fire, is done with a real effect. What they did was they built a cityscape vertically and would then start an explosion at the bottom and film it with an ultra-high rate camera. Um, similar to the filming techniques that I talked about a few episodes ago regarding Thunderbirds, where you would film explosions with a very, very fast-rate camera so that when you slowed the effect down, the explosions seemed to bigger and seemed to take longer. And that's how they got that creeping wall of fire that overwhelms the buildings um, by just sort of tilting the camera like that. And... I think it really works. They do toss up some vehicles with CGI. um, And like I said, those are some of the more wonky um, aspects of the CGI. But yeah, I think it, I think it really works quite well. Um, The film also has some great locations. Like they do some actual shots at, Obviously, they use the, the Utah Salt Flats, which I mentioned earlier, which is quite a stunning visual location. you got the feeling Roland Emmerich grew to like that location because he uses it a few times in this movie and quite a lot in the sequel. Um, there's also the... You know, they get a plane to film in an actual canyon. I don't think it was the Grand Canyon, but they I think it was uh, Little River Canyon, I think I remember reading where they filmed a plane and they used that to get actual footage for the pilot shots um, when they're flying through the Grand Canyon. Um, There's also some very good interior locations, not just the the recreations of the Oval Office, but also the the soundstage for the... um, I presume it was a soundstage, I doubt it was a an external location for the actual blasted LA that Jasmine and her survivors are wandering through. That's very good. It looks, it looks believable. It looks terrifying. Um, There's also area 51, the area 51 base itself is a good location. It has this, uh, what Dr. Oaken calls the viewing gallery with three, um alien corpses suspended in formaldehyde and then a wall that opens up to view the lab which is where oaken starts his dissection of a captured alien that steve has brought in um and that alien has its encounter with uh president whitmore and it's like that's a good location with a good bit of geography around it and it's used quite a bit in the film in the, in the second act especially and then obviously there's the hangar where they keep the alien ship that crashed at Roswell, um, the alien scout ship. Um, 
And again, it's this big open plan room with boards and computers, and it looks like a sort of a mission control almost as they're studying the ship. And yeah, I really like it. I think it's a really good location. And it's very bright as well, uh, which is something I'll come back to. It's, it's very bright, very nicely lit. Um, and it gives plenty of room for all the characters to talk. Like, there's a bit at the opening of Act 3 where uh, David demonstrates that he's able to lower the alien shields, which he does by putting a Coke can inside the... well, on the alien craft and having uh, Adam Baldwin's character, the, the Marshal, shoot it. Um, and at first he shoots it with the shield on and the shield kind of envelops the ship and everyone kind of ducks and then he does it again and this time he's turned the shield off and every main character is in the room at that point so you've got Connie, the president um, Julius, uh, Colonel Grey um, Secretary of Defence Nimziki um, Steve, Jasmine, Dylan they're all there <laughs> And it makes for a very, very good moment. So, yeah, I think the the locations work really well to help with the, the visual storytelling. And I think Area 51 being an invented location in this, they, they really put some effort in to make it feel believable. Like, you get a good sense of the geography of the Area 51 base watching this film unfortunately it doesn't carry over to the sequel area 51 is again a big principal location in the sequel but not only is the lighting inside it drastically changed like um area 51 in the second film is oppressively dark like it's far more visually similar to the interior of the mothership which is itself its own fantastic location towards the end of the third act of the first film, as the the scout ship piloted by Steve and David flies through it. Um, and it opens up to this massive area. Um, you know, Area 51 in this is, is very dark. It's sometimes quite hard to see what's going on. Uh, everything's lit with, lit with this sort of dull indigo light, um and yeah it becomes very hard to watch some of the scenes there there's also some very bad green screen compositing um not just at the anniversary celebration in washington dc but also a scene where whitmore has a speech in the second film and he's talking to David, but he's in a room surrounded by pilots. So he sort of starts talking to David and then gets caught up in his own oratory. And the soldiers and pilots all around him kind of listen in. And it becomes clear by the end he's kind of talking to them. And David looks very impressed, suitably impressed. Um, but yes, yeah, some of the soldiers standing around him, they obviously filmed it on a soundstage... And then kind of, uh, I'd imagine a blue or a green soundstage and then composited them all into a digital environment. And some of those background characters are not composited in very, very well. They look, they really look like they're standing out from the background. 
and yeah, it just does not look good, and it's really distracting when you notice it over what is quite an emotional sequence. So yeah, um, so yeah, that's that's one issue where I think this uh, is not quite as impressive. The new ship is the new alien ship is enormous like even compared to the previous um but it gets to the point of ridiculousness because it just feels too large but at the same time not large enough like at one point a whole load of ships the ships and the bombers fly towards it and when we first see it it's it's over the atmosphere it's that tall but then they end up above it but they're still in the atmosphere. Very clearly still in the atmosphere. They're not in space. But the ship is taller than the atmosphere of the planet. So I don't know how that works. It's kind of enormous, but... Yeah, and, and it's like the alien ship can be seen from Nevada where Area 51 is, and you can see it on the horizon, like past the horizon. But it's over the Atlantic Ocean, which is the other side of America. Even with the size of it, with the curvature of the Earth, they shouldn't be able to see it. But towards the ending sequences of the film, you can. You can see it take off. In fact, when it takes off, it's visible. There's like a montage of people watching it leave from like all over the world. It's really bizarre. Uh, you know, presumably they're all around the Atlantic and North Africa, but still, it's so bizarre in terms of the sense of scale. The arrival of the ship is obviously built to be this huge, terrifying moment. But to me, it lacks all of the impact or dread that was present in the original film. The original film, when the aliens arrive, um, you know, we've seen the city destroyers split from the mothership in space. So we then see someone come and tell the president about the fact that it's breaking up. Um, and then there's a, a series of frantic scenes as they're tracking these ships through the atmosphere. Um one of them takes out a plane on its way down. Uh, people start panicking around the country. We see people looking up in awe um, at these these firestorms that are crossing the sky. Um, and then obviously David watches the, the final shot as the, the firestorm dissipates and the ship itself comes to bear over New York City, over the centre of Manhattan. And it's very, very cool. In this, though, it lacks any of the impact, any of the dread, because it just kind of appears. It appears over the moon, it picks up um, and drags the space tug as well as several other uh, planes. Um, it destroys the moon base, it destroys the satellites, it then goes over Hong Kong, uh, drops Hong Kong on top of London, and then just kind of settles in place. And... You know, the destruction isn't as impressive uh, as visually impressive. Um, 
as in the original movie, because one, it's all CG, um, so it's not as impressive as watching actual models get destroyed. I'm, there are some amazing things you can do with um, computer-generated imagery nowadays. There are some in absolutely incredible things doable with this technology. Um, you know, you don't have to look at something like Thanos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to realise that you can do some incredible things with this technology. Um, you know, characters like Thanos, even Gollum, um, back in Lord of the Rings, back in the day, is an incredible achievement. But then you look at, um, you know, so many other things that just seem fake and deliberately fake and there's especially when there's elements of those same things being done practically when you when you can find examples of those same things being done practically and you realize just how bad they look by comparison and I think, you know, the destruction in this film compared to the destruction in the original film. But then even also, if you look at, you know, Roland Emmerich's other work, like 20, uh, 2012, you know, we've seen this done before. We've seen, you know, the original film had years of imitation, like decades of imitation, including by Emmerich himself, so seeing the the warping of the gravity in Hong Kong isn't as distinct or memorable as anything in the original film. You know, the, the destruction of the White House or the Empire State Building in, uh, in the first film is far more memorable. Far more memorable. Um... The action in this film is also really bland. It becomes really hard to visually distinguish between the ships and the planes, uh, you know, during the action sequences, um, of which there's only really one big one, which is sort of in the middle of the film with the, when they launch the attack on the mothership. But in the original, during both of the main battle sequences, uh, you could really easily... Distinguish between the planes and their missiles and the alien ships. They had different shapes. The planes in this, their new shape is very, very similar at a glance, especially from a distance, to the alien ships. And they're all shooting green lasers. So you can't distinguish between, is that ship shooting a green laser one of the good ones or one of the bad ones? Um... And yeah, it becomes hard to watch those sequences because it's hard to distinguish between them. And I think it it lets that scene down. Um, although that action sequence is over very, very quickly anyway. It, yeah, it does become a bit hard to distinguish between them and, and realise who you're rooting for. Um, but, yeah, it's a shame. V 
Visuals are, of course, only one way you can tell a story. And as good as they are, I think good visuals can fail on bad sound design. Independence Day, both of them, actually, have pretty good sound design for the most part. I do as well think the first film is inherently superior in this regard than the sequel. The first film, for example, not only has this incredible sound design in the creatures themselves, the actual aliens, um, everything from their their laser blasters to the, the ominous roar of their main weapon, um, you know, as it rumbles and hums before it fires, um, the exploding cities, the actual ships as they move into position... Um, and of course, the actual sound designs of the creature themselves, like um, you know, the way the tentacles whip around and things like that, it, it it does make for something that was it's fairly different to a lot of science fiction that was around at the time, um, while having a lot of similar elements. You know these. the sound design for the harvesters was very distinctive the sequel keeps some of that but i think does redesign a lot of those sounds unnecessarily um you know the the energy blasts coming from the ships sound different the way the ships move in the air sounds different um the primary weapon um, that the the city destroyer ships have, there's an equivalent weapon used only once, maybe twice, at the start of the film when the the big mothership arrives, um, and it lacks the the impact of the original. Um, even the 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 quite ominous way that the uh, the city destroyers come into place. You know, the the sound effects that are being used there have nothing compared to the... the you, know, you know, the mothership doesn't compare to them at all. Um, but I think the most prominent difference in sound is the score. The first film was scored by David Arnold, who had been a... Well, he worked with Roland Emmerich previously on Stargate, um, which also has a great soundtrack, and he would work with him again in Godzilla. He's also worked on the BBC Sherlock series, um, several James Bond films, and the Amazon Prime series Good Omens, um, the soundtrack for which is also phenomenal from what I've heard of it. I haven't actually gotten around to watching all of Good Omens yet, but I have heard some bits of that soundtrack, and it is it's very, very good. Now, it's probably not going to surprise you that I'm a big fan of David Arnold's score for this film. I think it's one of the best science fiction scores I've ever heard. Um, it's got some very good uses of um, leitmotifs, and there are several very powerful and sometimes quite stirring ones that recur throughout, and they're very, very strong. Um, 
you know, there's the, the ominous music that we get for the actual aliens themselves, which appears almost from the first track in the soundtrack. You know, and that leitmotif for the aliens becomes is ever present in a lot of the early tracks in the soundtrack, um, going right up to Firestorm, which is the track that actually unleashes um, the City Destroyer's weapons. Um, and, you know, it's this very rousing um, moment in the soundtrack as you, you watch the cities get destroyed. Um and it fits very, very well, and it builds up their threat. It helps to build their threat throughout the first part of the film. Um, you know, even in other music, that alien leitmotif appears. But it's not the only um, recurring motif. The other big recurring motif is the the sort of the the voice of humanity to borrow from War of the Worlds. Um, you know, the idea that there's this more optimistic note that's going to come back, that the humans are going to come back. And that motif attaches itself to at key points in the film to various different characters, most notably um, Thomas Whitmore and Stephen Hiller, um, but also to... Um, to David and even to Russell Case um, and it is you know it can start as a, a quite small tune I think it's being played on a piccolo um, you know so it's, it's, it's very much a military instrument that it's being played on and yet it will build to this big rousing score as the rest of the um, the orchest orchestration comes in to build this song up and obviously it's most prominent in the president's speech um which is the big the big sort of stirring moment of the whole thing um but yeah it's it's it it becomes the main motif that recurs across most of the back half of the movie. Um, and in fact, some of the songs, it's kind of a juxtaposition between the two. Um, for example, The Day We Fight Back, um, the song that plays over most of the final battle, shifts the tone between the, the two leitmotifs um, as we've got the humans versus the aliens in this climatic final battle. And I think it really helps to to build the whole thing and the use of those strong leitmotifs and how they keep coming back in the song it, it, uh, throughout the score of the film means that you end up paying attention to them and you notice them and you notice how they're being used um in a similar to the way the leitmotifs were in something like the lord of the rings which i spoke about then there's there's a, a very key leitmotif of the fellowship that keeps recurring in certain moments and you know it's there's elements of it that we hear in hobbiton so it can continues re reappearing in like return of the king even though the fellowship has long since broken up we get elements of that that hobbiton theme and this is very similar in that we we are getting elements of themes that we've heard already um for the human characters for um the aliens even for like the threat of their weapon that actually seems to have its own leitmotif so does um 
the romance element between um, a couple of the characters, obviously um, Stephen and Jasmine, but also in some elements between David and Connie. You know, there's that romantic element that builds through the story as well. And, you know, we get a theme that sort of echoes that. And it does even appear in a certain way um, in the final scenes between Marilyn and Thomas. Um, so, yeah, it's I really like the soundtrack. <laughs> I really, really do. And I think you can listen to the soundtrack in isolation from the film and still have a good time. It is a good soundtrack. It may not surprise you that I do not feel the same way about the other one. Um, the soundtrack for Resurgence is by Thomas Wanda and Harold Closer, who are, again, very frequent collaborators of Roland Emmerich. They've been involved in a lot of his films since uh, uh, The Day After Tomorrow and 2012. And I find their soundtrack just forgettable. Um, the, it doesn't echo any of the leitmotifs from the first film, which is fair enough. I mean, they're, they're different artists. They're trying to do something different. Um, but it creates a, a more of a dissonance, especially when you watch the two films back to back. But also... I find a lot of their music in this just very, very generic. Um, you know, the hero music sounds like hero music. It sounds exactly what you would expect when I say hero music. It sounds very cookie cutter. Um, you know, it doesn't sound too different from anything we haven't heard in a dozen other action movies. You know, it's... It feels cookie-cutter, and as a result, it feels replaceable. I don't think you could replace the soundtrack in the original movie and have the film be as good as it is. This one, you could replace that soundtrack, and you would probably improve the movie, to be quite honest. And I'm sure they're fantastic composers. I'm sure, I've, I'm sure they've done brilliant, you know, loads of other great scores... You know, um, I think Harold Closer worked on Aliens vs. Predator, which, again, had quite generic music, but was still quite rousing at certain points. Um, but, yeah, it's just forgettable. And I think that's a huge shame, because Independence Day... 1996 as for all its flaws and I'm not by any means trying to suggest that ID4 Independence Day is not is a flawless film it is not there are many many flaws to Independence Day but I do think it's memorable despite those flaws and I think the music is a key part of that as to why it's memorable even if all you remember is the bad stuff, the music will probably be something that you won't think is bad. You'll probably come back to it and go, eh, it was all right. Even if I think the, the worst complaint you can make about the music is it's very 
American, which is a common complaint with a lot of the first film, is that it's very American-centric. You know, the the idea even of the piccolo, the piccolo is a very... It's something you sort of associate with... Um, you know, uh, or at least to me as a Brit, it's something you associate with uh, the American Revolution or the American Civil War. It's it's an instrument of that time period. Um, you know, things like Yankee Doodle have a piccolo. Um, so... I think you can make the complaint that it is very... Yeah. It's very American in that regard. But that still suggests you'd mem remember it. I don't think you can remember the soundtrack for Insurgent. I I've watched Resurgence a couple of times leading up to this episode. I can't remember a single song from it. Nothing in the music stuck in my head. But I can hear the main melodies of the late motifs for the first film in my head. Just I can recall them really easily, but Resurgence just hasn't stuck with me in the same way. So make of that what you will, but for me, it makes that aspect of the film worse. Now, before I finish this, I want to compare one element of the two films which is also one area where the first film gets quite heavy criticism, which is its characters. As I said, there tend to be four main characters, four main hero characters in the first Independence Day. There is President Thomas Whitmore, scientist David Levinson, fighter pilot Stephen Hiller, and washed-up, alcoholic Russell Case. Now, there are other characters. The, the, the film is an ensemble cast, and there are some great characters who, you know, and some great actors that, for me, and presumably quite a few other people, this was their my first experience to their work. Um, for example, Harvey Feierstein is in this, who I quite like, and my first experience of him was in this, where he plays David's boss. Um, and he's somewhat stereotypical in his performance, um, but not in a way that I find any way negative. Um, but then I'm not the, the type of person that he's parodying, so maybe... It is somewhat offensive to those people, but I, I, Harvey Feierstein just seems like a nice guy. So, However, most of the extra characters that are introduced or developed are usually anchored around one of these main four protagonists. So, um, for example, Russell has his family, his young children, um, the most prominent of which is Miguel. Um, and it's implied that Miguel is his stepson rather than his actual son. Um, but the younger two children are implied to be Russell's. Although saying that, there's not much difference between Miguel and um, the daughter, whose name escapes me right now. 
Um, David, his most prominent um, supporting characters are his connection with Connie, who I will come back to in a minute, and um, his father, Julius. Um, Julius played by Eugene Levy, who I think also does a, a brilliant job. I think he's uh, one of the more entertaining characters in the film, has some of the more standout laugh-out lines, um, usually delivered in a very deadpan, very wry way. Um, and so, yeah, for me, that character is a highlight of this first film. He also has, as I said, his boss, but his boss doesn't survive Act 1. He dies during the, um, the decimation of New York. For Steve, his main supporting characters are his partner Jasmine, played by Vivica A. Fox, and his stepson Dylan. Um, Dylan is very young in this, um, and... Um, Jasmine is separated from Steve when he gets called back to his military base. Um, he also has a fighter pilot friend of his, um, played by Harry Connick Jr. His character called Jimmy Wilder. Um, he's relatively entertaining. He's a very gung-ho military type. Um, but he also seems to be a very close friend of Steve. Like, he gives him some some quite he, he's one of those friends that will tell you the things that you don't necessarily want to hear um which we see in one scene with steve where steve wants to propose to um jasmine but he also wants to fly the space shuttle and he keeps getting turned down by nasa and you know harry says look i love jasmine uh, harry connick jr's character jimmy says i love jasmine but they're never gonna let you fly the space shuttle if you marry a stripper which is unfortunately probably true um even probably still today but definitely probably in 1996 um because yeah jasmine's an exotic dancer which is also in itself probably a negative stereotype for a young black woman, um, a young black woman who until recently presumably was a single mother. Um, but I do like that um, there's no shame in it, in this, which is remarkably positive for a film in 1996. Like, Steve knows about it and is presumably comfortable and confident enough with it that his best friend Jimmy also knows. Which is is great I, I like that that's surprisingly positive and i'm very down for that i also like how that um like when she gets asked by the president's wife jasmine doesn't hide that fact she speaks out quite openly about it and says yeah she's an exotic dancer you know because the president's wife marilyn thinks she's um um oh, what's it a ballet dancer you know, she says she dances, and she's ah oh, ballet. She's like exotic, and it's like that's an it's a nice touch. I like that. Um, you know, for a film from nineteen ninety six, it's that's while it may be a, possibly a negative stereotype, it's surprisingly forward thinking in the way it's handled within the context of the film. So, I do like that. The majority of the supporting characters, though, are for Thomas's storyline. Um, in fact, most of the characters, the other characters, all gravitate towards being part of Thomas's cast and supporting him um, throughout the movie. Um, 
Thomas's main supporting characters are. Oh, sorry. Hang on. I I, I just realised I said Eugene Levy earlier for um, Julius. That's not right. Eugene Levy's the one from American Pie. It's Judge Hirsch. Judd Hirsch playing Julius in this. Uh, again, another great Jewish actor. Fantastic in this role. Um, but yes, Eugene Levy is a completely different person. Um, but yeah, Thomas's main supporting characters obviously are his wife, Pope Mary McDonnell, um, Marilyn, um, his daughter, Patricia, but also... Uh, General William Gray, um, played by Robert Loggia, who is very much a military stereotype, but is also clearly a mentor figure for um, Thomas. And we know that Thomas is a uh, a former fighter pilot himself and a veteran of the Gulf War. Um, so while Gray is a a Marine Corps general, it's possible that him and Thomas had some sort of previous friendship or, or working relationship together because they, they do seem quite close, which is great. Um, Connie um, is Whitmore's White House Communications Director. She's played by Margaret Collin. Um, She's also David's ex-wife, which is um, how she connects to that character and how she's actually to able to bring David into becoming one of Thomas's allies. There's also um, Albert Nimzicki, played by James Red Redhorn, who is the Secretary of Defence. Um, Nimzicki is a corrupt politician. Like... That's how he's presented in the, in the thing. He's presented as someone you're not meant to like. Um, you're not meant to just trust him. And you're said meant to trust far more um, the military character of General Grey and um, Major Mitchell, played by Adam Baldwin, who comes in later on. And it leads to a story inconsistency, I find, which is that Nimziki knows about Area 51 and what it truly contains and hides that from the president until Julius mentions it in the aftermath of the first attack. And the problem I have with that as a, a core concept is... Well, essentially the problem I have with that is that it doesn't make sense to me um, in the American government or system, the government has the potential to change every four years. Um, you know, and the government, you know, the, the, the president appoints his secretaries. Um, so Nimziki was his secretary of defense and, you know, Whitmore does actually say that he shouldn't have appointed Nimziki as his Secretary of Defence. Which means, why does the Secretary of Defence have knowledge of what is inside a classified military base like Area 51? It, you know, if the President doesn't know, why would his Secretary of Defence know? It would make far more sense for the military general, General Grey to know that information 
and give that to the president rather than Nimziki. <laughs> um, so that's like my my biggest nitpick with the story of this whole thing. Like, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief for a lot of things. That's one that that really I don't like. And I think it's purely done so that we don't like Limziki and that we instead root for Grey. Um, and it helps that Robert Loger is perfectly charismatic in this. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's one one issue that does niggle at me. Um As I said, I mentioned uh, Major Mitchell. It was played by Adam Baldwin. He's the commanding officer of Area 51. The other major character that we meet in Area 51 is Dr. Oaken, who is played by Brent Spiner. Um, Dr. Oaken is a very bizarre character, very excitable, very unkempt, and kind of excited because the machine is the alien machine is working but also seems quite unaware of what's happening in the outside world um, like he says you know the past few days have been really exciting and thomas is like exciting people are dying out there and he's like well, yeah but i'm talking from a scientific perspective um dr oaken is seemingly killed uh, at one point in the movie, he gets possessed, almost, by the alien um, that he's supposed to be dissecting, the one that Steve's brought to the base. And... It, it seems to kill him, um, but off the back of the original film, several people, including... Um, Roland Emmerich himself and Brent Spiner both said, oh, no, no, Dr. Oaken isn't dead. Um, and Dr. Oaken even got a tie-in novel, uh, a prequel, showing how he came to work at Area 51 and became became the head scientist there. So, yeah, it, it's quite clear that he was going to reappear at some point, which he does in the sequel. Of the main characters, I think... Um, Thomas is very interesting. He's quite likable. Um, he just seemed to agonise over a lot of his decisions and not know what the right course of action is. And I think that's very believable. He, he wants to do the right thing, regardless of the consequences. Like, he he doesn't suggest evacuating the cities quite early on. He wants to, to wait and see what happens. He wants people to be calm. And obviously that does backfire on him. Um, you know, his, his decision to use nuclear weapons is something that he, he agonises about and only decides to pursue that course of action after having his life threatened. So I think, I think yeah, he's he's a very good character, um, and Bill Pullman plays him spectacularly well, and the the speech, which is the the most the thing he's most well known for, the most iconic part of the whole character, um, 
you know, it's good. And it shows that the character is quite good at talking to people. And this is why people voted for him. He knows what the people want to hear. You know. It's a very idealised idea of what a, a war hero president could look like. Um, I think the last few decades since then have shown that we don't have presidents like that, unfortunately. But um, unfortunately, it is what it is. I do think, though, as much as Thomas and as much as Thomas gets developed, and as much as Will Smith got the higher billing on the character sheet, I do think the central character is supposed to be David, and I think this is supported by the film, in that David is the first character shown in the film to get two separate scenes in succession. Um, with every other character, they get like one scene into cut with like it's a scene of the aliens then a character introduction then a scene of the aliens then a character introduction david is the first one to get two separate scenes in succession like his first scene is with his father his second scene is at his job with his boss um harvey firestone's character marty marty that's his name um and so his scenes are as well as being um you know two scenes together they also initially seem in isolation to the wider alien plot going on and like i said i think those scenes also highlight quite a lot about his character um you know he rides into his building on his bicycle he you know even on the floor where he works he rides out of the lift on the bicycle um he protests at rubbish being in the wrong recycling bins um he expresses concern for his father smoking it, you, you get a lot of nice touches showing who the character is and what his ideals are uh, you know uh, you know his father passes a comment on him still wearing a wedding ring despite being divorced and that uh, you know he works as a cable repair guy essentially when he went to MIT, showing that he's very smart. <sighs> so, yeah, I, I think David is very clearly meant to be the the central hero, or at least I think the film presents him and Thomas in equal respects as the central character. In fact, it's David, David coming back into contact with Thomas that... Makes Thomas and the others leave the White House. And, you know, from then the two of them are together for a lot of the film. Whereas Steve and Russell are sort of kept off separate for a large part of it. Um, you know, Steve is actually the main character who gets introduced last. Um, you know, Russell gets um, two scenes before Steve does. Um, one of which shows him dusting the crops and he dusts the wrong field. And the other one that shows him, you know, reveals that he was abducted by aliens, or at least he believes he does. It's it's never explicitly confirmed one way or the other in the film, which I do quite like. Um, 
you know, Steve is the main character introduced last, and him and Jasmine are asleep for a large part of it. <laughs> you know, it's only in his second scene where he wakes up and actually realizes, oh, there's aliens above LA. Um, so yeah, I, I I do think that of the of the main characters, David David and then possibly Thomas are supposed to be the main protagonists, despite how much. Steve and Russell are both built up as well. But together, the foursome, they are the four main heroes. Um, you know, and the other characters are all centred around one or the other of those. You know, several characters are, are killed off or removed in each act. Um, you know, Nimziki is kind of fired quite early on in Act 3. Um, he's not killed off, he's not removed, but he's he's kind of out of the way. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, I, th I, think it's, I think it's done well. I think it's paced well between these characters. You know, and, and how they all come together at Area 51 also feels very, very natural. Um... You know, David comes to the White House, saves Thomas. Uh, Thomas and, and all the rest of them land at Area 51 because Julius mentions Area 51, which means Nimziki reveals it to them, which means they land Air Force One at Area 51. Meanwhile, Steve has seen Area 51 from the air, punched out an alien. He's walking there when he runs into uh, Russell and the other survivors who have left Los Angeles um, in their, their big motorhome convoy. And he directs them to Area 51. They arrive in Area 51. Um, Steve wants to go and rescue his family, Jasmine and Dylan, who he believes are at El Toro military base, which is where Jasmine was heading with the survivors that she's found in the the bombed-out L.A. So Steve, being unable to, to go there, steals a helicopter and flies off and saves them and brings Jasmine and all the others back with him. And it's like... Everything comes together towards Area 51 as the final, and it's all logical decisions how the characters get there. And it's all teaming up. And it's all the characters combined in the right place that saves the day. And, yeah, I really like it. <laughs> like I said, this film is not flawless by any means, but I think in terms of its pacing and its characters... It works very well to tell the story it wants to tell. And, you know, the story is perfectly entertaining and done very, very well. So I have a lot of respect for it. The sequel, though, whoo boy, nowhere near as good. Um, for starters, it's very hard to tell who the main characters are supposed to be in this one. Um, you know, we have a new president, but she doesn't last very long. You know, she gets killed off about halfway through the film. We have a Secretary of Defense who becomes the next president, Piper William Fitchner, who is very poorly under... 
like even by Independence Day standards, he is very, very underdeveloped. I think a lot of the criticism that the characters in the first film got for being stereotypical is actually to their benefit because by playing into these stereotypes that we know, we get a good sense of these characters straight away to progress the story. And the characters in the second film do that as well to a certain extent. But in the case of someone like Fitchner's character, they're so underdeveloped. Like, it's a real half-baked stereotype. Um, you know, he's not... He's not a war hero. He's not a corrupt politician. He's just kind of a guy there to do a job. And survive. And... Yeah, I struggle with it because I'm not sure what they're trying to do with him. Um, you know, Thomas and David both come back. And despite having quite prominent roles, they're not the main characters in this. Dr. Oaken comes back, but again, he's not a main character. In fact, if anything, Dr. Oaken becomes comic relief, which can get tedious at times. I like Brent Spiner. I think the guy has incredible range and has actually some very, very good comic timing. I think the way they've written Dr. Oaken in this is terrible. Um, you know, Brent Spiner has played better holodeck characters in Star Trek episodes than he has in this. You know, um... There are there are bit part characters he has played in episodes like Masks and Fistful of Datas in Star Trek The Next Generation that he has played far better, that have had far better scripts and far more development in, you know, a, a three minute scene than, than Dr. Oaken gets this entire movie. And it's a shame because, like I said, Brent Spiner is an actor I have a lot of time for, I think episodes like Masks, where he is doing some amazing stuff in Star Trek, show that he is a phenomenal actor and has the potential to, to really turn in some great work. And I don't think this is it. And it's a shame. Um, it's a real shame. But yeah, in terms of the, who the main character is, David still gets quite a large role, um, as does Thomas. Um, Dylan and Patricia are both in it and both grown up. Um, played by new actors, which is interesting when both of their other actors are still working. Um, Mae Whitman suggests she was never even approached um, to reprise the role of Patricia. Um, and I wonder if it's because... The actress they did pick and Mae Whitman look very, very different. Um, you know, Mae Whitman is... Um, you know, she doesn't look like she could be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, let's put it that way. Um, not that I think she's an unattractive woman by any means, but... It feels like they... they picked another actress for a face and a body type that Mae Whitman didn't represent. 
And I think it actually works to their detriment because Mae Whitman is a is a good actress. Um, and I think with Dylan being played by a different character, because they use Jesse T. Unwin, most famous for playing A-Train in uh, The Boys. And I think, you know, he's a, good, he's a good actor, but again, doesn't get much to do in this at all. When we've got... You know, if we've got a different actor for Dylan, why not keep the same actress for Patricia? You know, why do, why do we need to change the actors the actors at all for either of them? I'm not sure. But even they don't feel like main characters in this. I think Hemsworth's character, Liam Hemsworth's character of, of Jake Morrison, is it? Probably feels more like a central protagonist than Dylan does. He feels a lot more similar to... I would say he feels similar to Steve Hiller, except I don't think he does. I think he has much more of the irreverence of uh, Harry Connick Jr.'s character, Jimmy. Um, but I also am not a huge fan of Liam Hemsworth's performance in this. I think his character just comes across as pretty insufferable. Um, you know, and spends a lot of his action sequences kind of gurning at the camera. And so, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of this performance. And I can't say I've seen enough of Liam Hemsworth's other work to say if this is a, a fault of his performance or if this is just how he performs all of his characters. Um, but, yeah, I'm not quite sold on it. Um, and then this film just keeps piling on new characters. And with some of the other characters, it's not explained what happened to them. Like, Connie got back with, together with David at the end of the last film. She's not in this at all. It's only 20 years later, and it's not explained what's happened to her at all. She's just not there. And David has a new love interest, now played by Charlotte Gainsborough, um, who, again, very good actress, but her character in this seems really underdeveloped. Um, there's, you know, Julius comes back and it feels, his, his inclusion feels really unnecessary and he, he gets introduced with a whole load of kids, um, who are without their parents and he kind of sort of takes them under his wing, which is lovely to see and is a, a nice bit of world building, but just distracts from the whole film. And those kids aren't introduced until quite late in the film. You know, it's, it's, it's over halfway through. And it just feels like a kind of a left field inclusion. Although I do like the fact that Julius wrote a book about how he saved the world, and I think that's that's great. Um, but he feels like Julius is included to fill a quota of returning characters. It's like, it's the same way um, Vivica A. Fox comes back as Jasmine, and in this she's a doctor now. Which is great. I love that character development. You know, she saved people in the aftermath of the thing in, in 
Los Angeles. She had the, the president's wife there who was obviously injured and she couldn't help her. And so she's learned how to become a doctor. That's great. I think that's tremendous character development. It follows from a lot of other people that I've, I've read who have gone into medical profession because someone was injured around them and they couldn't help um and they wanted to and so they decided to study medicine and i think it's great and i love that aspect of the character but introducing her in this and then killing her off as quick as they do does very little to the story she's killed off just to sort of motivate dylan um which then means she's essentially fridged, and I hate fridging as a trope. Um, but also, I don't think she does motivate Dylan very much. He he seems over her death within, like, three scenes. Within his next three scenes, he seems to have completely forgotten about her. You know, and he's... he's there's a lot of joking and banter with the other pilots. There's a nice little um, inclusion in the backstory that a lot of these characters are war orphans, including um, Liam Hemsworth's character of Jake and his best friend that I've forgotten the name of because he was very forgettable. Um, and I, I think that is a, a great inclusion that, you know, a lot of people died during the War of 1996. I also think there's a very obvious catering to Chinese audiences which is evident in a lot of films at this time um, you know the Transformers sequels became very egregious with it as well um, you know there's a couple of major Chinese characters who speak in Mandarin and it's great and I, I do appreciate that you know, the first film had this very, very American tone, so the inclusion of more Chinese elements suggests a more worldwide tone. Great. Love that. However, if that's the case, why can't Liam Hemsworth use his original accent? Why can't they just make his character Australian? It's because it's very obviously just pandering to the Chinese market. You know, if they really wanted a worldwide focus... You know, Liam Hemsworth's character. I mean, because they also include uh, an African character and um, Charlotte Gainsbourg's character, who is, um, I mean, Charlotte Gainsbourg herself is, is British and French uh, ancestry. So, you know, she, she's got that, that nice mixed accent as well. So there is more accents and more of a worldwide focus in this in some parts. But then they undercut that by having Leah Hemsworth play an American good old boy, where it's like, just have him be an Australian. You know, one of the things I like about a movie like, for example, Pacific Rim, is that it gets around the, the American focus that was the a big criticism of Independence Day by having a very, um, a more worldwide focused task force and group of characters um you know the main characters in something like pacific rim there are a couple of australians there's um there's a japanese woman uh, they're led by an english general 
You know, there's there's one American lead. Two, if you count the the guy from Sunny, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and you know of the other the other Jaegers, the pilots of one of them are Australian, the other pilots are Chinese, and the other pilots are Russian. So, yeah, I'll probably do a video on Pacific Rim because I do like Pacific Rim as a franchise as well, um, especially that first film. But. Um, yeah, it's disappointing that, you know, this came out after Pacific Rim, where one of the things it was prayed, praised for was not having Americans be the, the central thing. And then this film comes out and does, oh, Americans are the ones that win. <sighs> there are, there's only one character in this, though, that I actively hate. Um, which is the character of Floyd, who's like a a money man who's following David around on his expedition to Mbutu. And I'm not sure why he's even in this, really. He's really... It, it's a character who should have been gone by the end of Act 1. Um, because he essentially becomes like another comic relief character. And it already feels like there's a few comic relief characters in this. I think a large part of keeping Floyd around is to have him be the the sort of zany sidekick to Dikembe Untubu's uh, Mbutu's um, straight man. Because Mbutu is... he He's very straight. He's played as a, a warrior archetype and he, a very haunted one at that. His his performance is quite good. Um, and, you know, his character is quite good. Um <sighs> And he's a character archetype that we didn't really see in the first film. And then they pair him with Floyd, who's the most tedious character in this. I mean, Floyd's also the one who activates the, the sphere, um, where it reveals that, oh, you know, it's a race of aliens that are fighting the Harvesters. Ah, it's, yeah. I'm not a fan. There are some good things done with the characters in this, though. Um, I really like that Oaken and his partner are revealed as lovers. The partner being another scientist who appeared in the first film. And, you know, it's a nice little retcon. And there's some, some cute moments between them, which are, are really sweet, like, character moments. Um, and... But it does lead to a, a very last-minute kill-your-gaze trope, which, if there's one trope I hate more than fridging, as a queer person, it is kill-your-queers. Because I do not like that trope at all. No, with that. Such a tired trope, just including minority characters and then killing them off. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. Um... There's also um, a very, very clever scene where Whitmore basically does a, like a Batman-like stealth out of the room. <laughs> you know, he's, he's in the room with Oaken and Patricia and a, f a few others, and they're talking about the alien captives. They've got an Area 51, and then all of a sudden, like, Whitmore disappears out of the room, and the system's, like, bringing an alien to him. 
and it's like he's taken over the system to meet the aliens within seconds in a crowded room with no one noticing and he just like absconds to disappear mid-conversation he does all this and it's just it's bizarre <laughs> but very fun um i also really like whitmore's speech um, he has like another impromptu speech. He's mainly talking to David, and then the whole a whole room full of pilots kind of react. And it's it's not quite as rousing as his speech in the original, but it shows that Thomas is very clearly meant to be a hero, and I like that. You know, I like that despite everything else that's happened, he's a character that people still look up to because I do like him in the first movie. Um, the pilots have this this stupid rivalry especially Dylan and Jake they have this really stupid rivalry that's supposedly similar to uh, David and Thomas's in the first movie um, but the exposition for it is just like way more clumsy you know the, the scene where David meets you know, he comes into the White House with Julius and he's meeting Connie and Connie says, I'll go get the president. Don't hit him this time. And it's like, what, you punch the president? It's a very clever scene and it's kind of explained that, yeah, David thought that Con Connie was having an affair with Thomas and punched him. And this was before he was president, but while they were working together. And, you know, it's... It's kind of a tired trope, but it's interesting the way it's explained to the audience because it's explained through julius um you know it's explained by connie basically explaining it to julius who doesn't know the story um whereas in this you know jake is talking to patricia because he's dating patricia and he's having like a video call with her from the moon and she explains that she saw Dylan and that Dylan's on the way there um, for this anniversary event. You know, don't get into a fight with him. <laughs> you know, don't fight with him again. And she's like, oh, I only fought with him once and whatever. And it's... But it's explained through two characters who already know that history and that backstory. And so their language feels unnatural and clumsy. And it doesn't have the the same believability that it does in the first film. You know, the way it's revealed to the audience is just clumsy. Um, the pilots have this big attack scene um, where they all get inexplainable plot armor like they the their ships are deactivated and they start falling in the middle of the the mothership and the last we see of them they're they're falling to like certain doom but yet all of the main heroes survive because of course they do <laughs> um and it just means that they have this plot armor that the heroes of the original never seem to have. Like, of the four main heroes in the original film, Russell dies to save the day. Um, Steven gets shot down. 
you know, his friends die, you know, Jimmy dies. Um, yeah, after a certain point, a lot, a lot of the main characters die, but, you know, they're, they're in a way, in a sort of taken away from the fighting, you know? So it makes sort of sense that they don't die at that point. But, you know, when you have the big final battle, it looks like for a while that Steve and David are going to die. Russell does die, you know? So... It makes the plot armour that these characters have seem way more obvious and require much more of a suspension of disbelief than it ever did in the first film. And that feels cheap. When you're watching that as an audience, that feels cheap. Um, you know, Whitmore has the big sacrifice in this, which feels justified and feels earned with his story throughout this movie and obviously the previous one. But it doesn't kill the Queen. Um, you know, she survives, so they have to fight her again. There's also, when the pilots leave the mothership, I swear they had more of them at the start, and they all kind of jumped into ships. And, like, four... Sh I remember four ships taking off. But when, it, when they arrive in the final battle after being absent for a while of screen time, but... That's another point with this movie. The cast feels so much bigger, so it feels like they're having so much more of a tr a, a, a chore juggling it. Um, and it's like the, the nameless pilots in these other two ships seem to die. Like, I, they just seem to disappear. I don't recall them escaping the alien mothership. Just our four main pilots who were in two ships. And they they all survive the the final battle, as does Floyd and Dikembe and David and Julius and the busload of kids that were with them and Patricia and all these other characters who were involved in it. It's it feels cheap. It feels really cheap that there's no real weight to any of the stakes. There's no stakes in this final battle. Everyone everyone lives really effortlessly. And it just leaves the whole film feeling weak. And it's really disappointing. Because, yes, there's only... Only really the one main death in the first film towards the end, in that final battle... But we do see other pilots die, and there's there's far fewer named characters involved. The most of the named ones are away from the fighting. They're inside the base. They're inside Area Fifty One, controlling events. You know, of the ones that are involved, of the named characters that are involved in the battle, which are the president and Russell, one of them dies. In this. The named characters involved in that battle as uh, Patricia, Dylan, Jake, the other two pilots, I've forgotten the name, I think the Chinese one's called Rain, and I've forgotten, I want to say Charlie for Jake's friend, but I can't remember. David, Julius, Thomas, 
um, Floyd and Mbutu. And of them, only one of them dies, and he was the only one who was planned to die from the start. There should have been more loss to feel more stakes. And it means that the ending of this film feels really unearned. And that's even before you get to the sequel bait, and even before you get to the fact that they steal the final end title song from the first film because it's so much better. And that doesn't feel earned the ending of that first film feels earned. You've put a lot of time and effort into these characters and their struggles and their journey to get to it. In this one, nothing. I, It's probably the most disappointed I've been with a film and a sequel because, like I said, I, I really like the first film. I find it really memorable. I've, And while it's cheesy and camp... I love it, and it's definitely flawed, but it's also really good. This is not. <laughs> and, yeah. Not a fan. At the end of the day, I think... that... one of the biggest things that the first Independence Day has over the sequel is a strong central theme. Despite elements of that first film that reek of American jingoism, there is a rather large theme of all of the human characters coming together, despite their differences, relying on each other due to those differences to work together to overcome the alien threat. And I've commented on this already. You know, I mentioned how all the characters came together in Area 51. And it's all done to bring these disparate elements of humanity together and have them fight back together. As much as that parodied speech, you know, and has elements of the American jingoism saying that, you know, the 4th of July will no longer be an American holiday. You know, I think the intention there is that, you know, this is bigger than just America. It is a human effort. And it's rather optimistic despite the way it's presented. And yes, you know, Americans are the ones leading everything. They're the ones saving the day. It's not perfect. It isn't. It it really isn't perfect. But... The human characters in that film are forced to cooperate in this unprecedented way. They're forced to trust each other despite the differences between them. David especially gets trusted by both Thomas and Steve at key points in the story. You know, Thomas trusts him when he says that the countdown's happening, that, you know, that he says he's, he's solved the alien signal and they're about to attack. Thomas instantly trusts him when um, he outlines his plan for how they can fly the alien ship in and take down the the alien shields 
Um, you know, and Steve says that he can fly the ship. He's the only person alive who can fly the ship. And David says, can you really do that? And he says, depends. can you really do all that thing you just said? And it's like, you know, if David, if Steve trusts David, then David trusts Steve. You know, it's, it's great. You know, it's a nice optimistic message for what is essentially a, you know, a, a big budget action B movie. And I like it. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, yes, there's elements of, like I said, the jingoism and the, the propaganda elements and the, you know, the military propaganda, especially even without the, um, the Pentagon money. Um, but I think it works despite that, despite all the flaws it has. And it does have flaws. Like I said, I've not, I'm not hiding the fact this film has flaws. It does have flaws. You know, these characters, while they are well-written stereotypes, they are stereotypes. They could be developed a lot more. Some of them are. Some of them are really not. Some of them are really underdeveloped. Um, this... But I do think the film is memorable. I think it's worth your time. I think it's worth a watch. You know, I used to watch this film quite regularly. Um, the the terrestrial broadcasting networks in the UK used to have a habit of putting it on around Christmas. Um, you know, and it would be on. It'd be one of those films that they used to kind of bulk out their Christmas programming here, and you know, over Christmas and New Year. And, yeah, for a few years, I ended up watching it, like, once a year because there was very few... There wasn't much other good TV on it over Christmas and New Year. It's it's all Christmas specials or old films. And in terms of the old films, you know, Independence Day was not one I minded revisiting at all. The sequel, though... I don't think I'll ever watch it again. I've watched it for this, but I have no overwhelming desire to ever go back to it. And to be honest, where I used to once be excited for the the prospect of a a sequel for this film, I have no intention of ever seeing a sequel to Resurgence. You know, this was... <laughs> Despite that really obvious sequel bait, you know, despite the, you know, the, the, the alien intelligence suggesting exactly that sort of coming together despite your differences, um, that, you know, that it wants for the humans and the other aliens it's rescued from the harvesters. Despite all of that, no. This film just left me cold. That first film, when I saw it originally, it played on my mind. Like, the concept of these aliens and how they attacked. I tried to think how, you know, the, the harvesters, as they're called now, how, they, how these Independence Day aliens, how would they fit in other stories? 
Like, what would happen if a, a city destroyer like that appeared over New York in the Marvel Universe? Or over Gotham in DC? Or Metropolis? You know, that sort of the cross-pollination of ideas. You know, how how would these aliens fare against the Federation in Star Trek? You know? These things played on my mind. These these creatures played on my mind. The threat they posed played on my mind. To the point I wanted to see more of it. And now I don't. It's... Uh, any interest I have in... This property is confined to that first film. You know, the characters, the, the world building... You know, even when I used to think about what the world might look like after Independence Day, you know, after they beat them in the end of 96, how did they rebuild? It's not how they rebuilt in that film. I have so many issues with the way that Resurgence pre presents the world almost unchanged 20 years later. I mean, there's plenty more advanced technology and we've got bases on the moon and... Raya, which is one of Saturn's moons, but okay, fine. That's that's kind of cool. We're exploring space more. I like that. But Washington DC, New York, London, Paris, they've all been completely rebuilt. At why? How? You know, America is still the central most powerful government in the world. Okay, how? Why? <sighs> It doesn't sit well with me, and I do think it affects the whole franchise, and it affects my perception of that franchise, and I think it will affect millions of other people's perception of that franchise. So, yeah, I'm not interested in any sequels, despite what they may promise. I do do I think the 20 years between the two films helped make that one worse maybe but I think if you'd have gone with this plot you know in the early 2000s for example I still think it would have been received exactly the same it's not a good plot it's not a good story <laughs> As ever, what are your thoughts? Um, if you would like to reach out to me, please do, in all the usual places. Uh, I'm still trying to build up this Discord community. If anyone wants to join me there and talk more about films and movies, please come along and join us uh, on Discord. Or you can, you know, reach out in all the usual places. Um, until next time, my friends. You take care of yourselves. Look after yourselves. Look after your mental health, and most importantly, um, as someone struggling with my own, it is a key thing that we all need to look out for. So, yeah. Look after yourselves, my friends. Until next time. Thank you, my friends, for listening to another episode of Gardo Goes Geek, your consistent 
engagement with this podcast and this channel means the absolute world to me and I am thankful for every single one of you. If you would like to get in touch with me to discuss anything further about the podcast, maybe suggest episodes or topics you might like me to cover, then please feel free to reach out. I now have a Discord community which I am trying to build up and I would love to see more of you there. The link for it can be found in my link tree which is published wherever you have heard this podcast. Also, if you would like to support me in any way, um, then please feel free to buy me a coffee on my coffee link. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Thank you.